I want you to think of the best meal you've ever eaten. Perhaps it was after uh, a trip somewhere and it wasn't really that good, it's just it was the best food you'd had in a while. Or maybe it was something really, really good. Elisa and I recently treated to an all expenses paid nothing off the menu except maybe the $500 bottle of, bottles of wine uh, meal uh, at the revolving restaurant uh, in Sandy Bay. And it was very memorable. Great service, great atmosphere, great view, good company, absolutely delicious three courses plus uh, oysters and other bits along the side. Wonderful meal. Very, very, very memorable. But you know the problem with uh, that delicious all expenses paid meal was? I went to bed and I woke up the next day and I was hungry. I had to eat breakfast and breakfast was a shake because I had to pay off the calories that I'd eaten the, the night before. It was, all, it was extremely disappointing uh, follow-up. Good food was good and great and wonderful and memorable, but it didn't keep me full. And it doesn't matter how skillfully it's cooked, how beautifully it's prepared, how much we pay for it. We eat, we do things, and we get hungry again. Which is why we need to pay attention to the promise of Jesus here, which is for food that truly satisfies. And it's why we can imagine the crowd would be particularly interested in this promise of Jesus. But of course, as we see, uh, Jesus goes from 5,000 plus people to 12 as he promises food that satisfies. So we're going to look at all of that as we uh, have a look at this reading. We'll start where the reading starts, which is with the crowd and Jesus. You'll remember that uh, at the start of this chapter, which we looked at last week, the crowd, these guys have probably had one of, one of their most memorable meals. Not memorable because uh, it was fine dining at its best, but because it was a truly remarkable thing that happened. A little boy gave a disciple five loaves, two fish, and Jesus prayed, and there was so much food that all of these people, 5,000 plus, were fed, uh, and there was these 12 baskets stacked full of leftovers. So they've, they've had this amazing eating experience, and that crowd has been looking for Jesus ever since because we know that Jesus retreats because the crowd are pretty impressed with him, they want to make him king by force. And uh, uh, now they've retreated and, they're, uh, uh, and Jesus retreated and the crowd's gone looking for him. Jesus, we know, walked on the water, went and rescued his disciples from a storm and they're on the other side of the lake. And the crowd has made their way around. And we read, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, verse 25, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus, rather than answering their question directly, he exposes the motives they have in uh, his answer. Have a look at verses 26 and 27. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. 
Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. The crowd like Jesus because he feeds them. He gives them what they want, what they need, what they think they need. They're obsessed with him so far because of all the different signs that he's performed, only a few of which John has recounted in full detail up to this point in his gospel. But Jesus wants disciples who are seeking more than just their fill. Jesus wants disciples who look to him. They ask Jesus as he responds to them, well, what must we do, verse 28, to do the work that God requires? And Jesus' response is, the work of God is this, verse 29, believe the one he has sent. It's not enough to just follow me around and try and get stuff from me. You actually need to believe. You actually need to trust. And the crowd, again, exposes their true motives, don't they? Because they ask for another sign as if there haven't been enough already. What sign, verse 30, will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? And there's, I think there's a great irony in all of this because they, they, they say our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness as it is written, he gave bread from heaven for them to eat. Like, what are you going to do, Jesus? This is the crowd that was on a mountain that he just fed. But they're, they're obsessed with miracles and what they can get from Jesus for themselves. And so Jesus responds to them by trying to teach them how the, the, the manna in heaven is meant to point them, the, the manna that Moses gave them is meant to point them to something greater, to God's true provision, his spiritual provision that uh, feeds their spiritual hunger. And he teaches about him being the bread of life. What sign will you give that we may believe? What will you do? Verse 32, Jesus begins his teaching. Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you bread, the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The manner in the wilderness pointed to me. Okay, fine, says the crowd. Give us this bread. Always give us this bread, verse 34. And Jesus says, I am the bread. I am the bread of life, verse 35. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the true bread of heaven. I am the one that God has sent to satisfy your hunger and thirst. I am the one you need to come to to receive life and sustenance, provision. And before we consider how uh, the people respond because the, their response is kind of chronicled at a, at a few points throughout our reading today. I just want to stop and consider the teaching that Jesus gives here in, uh, as he declares himself to be the bread of life. There's sort of three blocks sort of spread out uh, in the passage here uh, in amongst uh, the people's responses. And I just want to uh, work through them 
relatively quickly. You've got the Bibles open there on your phone or uh, from the chairs. Verses 35 to 40 is the first kind of chunk where Jesus declares himself to be the bread of life. And he's promising them that it is him who provides eternal satisfaction for their souls. He says to them, if you come to me, I will welcome you and I will save you. He says that it is his job to do God's will and God's will is to save all those who look to Jesus and believe. These are the ones who have eternal life. We'll think a little bit more about that in a moment. But then uh, uh, they, the, the, there's a response and then Jesus continues. Stop grumbling. No one can come to the Father uh, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last, last day. And on he goes through to verse 51. And in this section, we see that Jesus is teaching us that it is God who works powerfully in the lives of all who believe in Jesus. It is the Father, Jesus said, who draws people to Jesus. Now, Jesus' teaching here can be uh, controversial and uh, hard to understand. But we have to hold uh, the passage in tension because Jesus says, whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. That's back in verses 35 to 40. But, uh, my Father's will is this, that whoever, everyone who looks to the Son and believes shall be saved. So he's calling us to look to Jesus. But now in this section, verses 43 to 51, uh, he's reminding us that we can't look to Jesus without God's, the Father's help. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. The work of God in the Father, in giving people to Jesus and in drawing them to Jesus, is an important biblical truth that Jesus states for us plainly here. But we must be careful that we don't make it say what it doesn't say and we don't overcomplicate things. Because what Jesus is simply saying on the face of it is that those who believe in Jesus, those who come to him, those who look to him, can rest securely knowing that this has happened because God has worked powerfully in their lives. The only way to God is God drawing you to himself. That doesn't mean... Uh, that we give up on evangelism. It doesn't mean that we don't worry about preaching the gospel. It just means that when, we've, when we have come to God, we can trust that he's got us and he holds us in his hands. And instead of feeling hopeless about our friends and our family who don't know Jesus, this truth, that it is only 
the Father who draws people to the Son is the only reason that I pray for my friends. It is the only reason that I seek God to work powerfully in the lives of the men and women I know who don't know Jesus. Because God is powerful to save. If you don't believe that God causes people to come to faith in Jesus, then you don't really believe in God. You believe in a God who can't overcome human will. What kind of God is that? But God works powerfully in the lives of human beings to bring them to Jesus. We have a responsibility to respond to Jesus with faith. That happens when God works powerfully in our lives, meaning God will not let go of us. I could probably preach a whole series on predestination. But we can trust God's got us and we can pray for those God doesn't yet have. That's what I want you to take away from this teaching. Second, in this section, verses 43 to 51, Jesus teaching that he is the true bread of life again, showing the people that this story of the manna from Moses, this was a sign that God was going to provide not just their physical needs but for their spiritual needs too, and Jesus is that provision. And then we get the third sort of chunk of teaching, perhaps the most difficult, certainly as the results of what Jesus says here show us, which we'll come to. But Jesus says in verses 53 to 58, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. That's weird. Like, that, that's weird. That, like, imagine you're sitting there on a hill and Jesus says, eat me and live. Drink my blood and live. Like, that's weird. What, what does he mean? What does it mean that we need to eat the flesh of Jesus and drink the blood of Jesus in order to have eternal life, in order to remain in Jesus. Well, could mean a number of things, couldn't it? Firstly, the place I suspect many of you have gone is to the Lord's Supper, to communion. It's interesting, and basically sort of take this to mean 
Uh, we need to sort of share in the Lord's Supper as a, as a means to, to salvation, something like that. But it's interesting that uh, if you, if you uh, study John's Gospel in depth, John's Gospel is the only Gospel that never has a sacrament in it. So Jesus doesn't get baptised in John's Gospel, right? Interesting. Also, if you go and read John 13, Jesus doesn't institute the Lord's Supper in John's Gospel. He washes the disciples' feet. Uh, and that's, that's an interesting factoid that uh, scholars will talk about uh, ad nauseum, some might say. But I think that if John and Jesus here meant to us to think of communion, it seems weird to me that John would then leave out the Lord's Supper, the institution of the Lord's Supper, uh, on Jesus' last night with his disciples. That seems odd to me. That doesn't seem to make logical sense. I certainly think we can see parallels uh, in what, what's happening when we share in the Lord's Supper to what Jesus is talking about here. But I don't think Jesus is talking about communion. He's not saying you need to have communion to be saved. Rather, Jesus is speaking figuratively. Jesus is saying throughout this whole section of teaching, he's the bread of life. He doesn't literally mean that he's bread, does he? That's obvious. He's speaking metaphorically. And I think he, in this last section, verses 53 to 58, he's, he's just extending the metaphor of what it means for him to be the bread of life. He's the bread of life who offers himself for the life of the world to accept this spiritual truth that Jesus has given of himself ultimately on the cross is to, to figuratively speaking, consume the bread of life. As Augustine says, believe and you have eaten. But there's one small problem that you have to overcome if you want to take it figuratively. And that is verse 55. Verse 55 says, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. If you're going to go for a figurative understanding of what it means to eat my flesh and drink my blood, what are you going to do with verse 55? Uh, perhaps you've been wondering that as I've been arguing for a figurative reading. Well, let me read to you what one scholar says about this. C.K. Barrett says, when Jesus says this, what he's saying is, my flesh and blood really are what food and drink should be. They fulfil the ideal archetypal function of food and drink. I'll read that again. My flesh and blood are what food and drink should be. They fulfil the ideal archetypal function of food and drink. That is, the purpose of food and drink is life sustainment. But because of sin, worldly food and drink does sustain us, but we die anyway. We wake up hungry and eventually we're dead. 
But Jesus does what food and drink is supposed to do. Jesus gives us life eternal. Jesus sustains us forever. Jesus is the bread of life. We come to God through him. We must believe in him to receive eternal life. We need God to draw us to himself and we need to feed on him in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. You might have heard me say those words before. Because it's through him that we receive true life and sustenance. So how are we going to respond to all this teaching? To this this claim that Jesus is the bread of heaven and that we need to feed on him? Well, we see a variety of responses to Jesus, don't we? As he teaches. We see rejection. We saw it at the very, uh, we see it very early on as Jesus is teaching, as he claims to be the bread of heaven. People say, verse 42, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? They're rejecting Jesus because they feel like they've already got him figured out. They remember him as that carpenter's son. And John already had foreshadowed that this sort of thing would happen back in chapter 4. Let me just read to you from verse 43. After the two days he left for Galilee, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country. The people choose to reject Jesus, not because of what he's saying, but just because they've made up their mind about him from others from other sources they feel like they've already heard about him and we can have that same kind of rejection too can't we we must we know people who who dismiss Jesus because they they think they've already figured him out oh he's not real I don't need to think about him or whatever their misapprehension of Jesus may be that's one response that people have to Jesus here in this reading they reject him because they they've already got him figured out in their mind A second kind of rejection happens uh, towards the end of the reading. They reject Jesus because they they hear what he's saying, but they, they, they can't accept it. They find it too hard. Verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. This is like Jesus said, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, no, like I didn't sign up for this. I don't, I, that, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't want to do it. It sounds weird to me. Jesus is teaching, they find it too hard. They misunderstand it. They don't want to accept what it means for them. But it's not just Jesus' claim that we need to feed on him that's hard to hear. Jesus makes all sorts of claims as Lord and Saviour that can be hard. And people often reject Jesus because they don't like what he says about something. His claims mostly about being Lord of your life. I'm sure all of us can think of someone 
who we know, who maybe was into Jesus for a while, but eventually it was just too much of an inconvenience for them because they they had their own ideas about how they wanted to live and the things they wanted to do and what they thought it meant to be a nice person. And the the claims of of Jesus just became too hard for them to accept and so they rejected Jesus. We can reject Jesus without ever really engaging, like some of them did. We can reject Jesus after hearing him out and deciding, you know what, I actually just want to do my own thing. This teaching's too hard. I'm not interested. Or we can accept Jesus because he's the only way to receive the gift of life. And this is what the disciples do. Jesus is left there. It's sort of like a sorry story in some ways from thousands of people to the, the faithful few. And Jesus turns to them and he says, verse 67, you don't want to leave too, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. It's like, yes, this is hard teaching. Yes, I don't fully understand what's going on, but I know who you are, Jesus. And where else could I go? Who else could I turn to? Because in you, Jesus, I I have met the Holy One of God. In you, Jesus, I have true and eternal life. Once you understand who Jesus is, that he's not some magic wish fairy to feed your stomach and perform magic tricks like you know healings and, and all these kind of things but uh, have no impact on your life, once you actually understand he's the son of God who brings salvation in the world, who brings God's kingdom, his rule and reign to bear and who offers you through faith eternal life, No matter how hard it gets, no matter how difficult it is, even if everyone else is walking away because they've misunderstood him or they just don't like what he has to say, when you've met Jesus, you've spent time with Jesus and you know who he is, there's nowhere else to go. No matter how difficult it gets, There's nowhere else to go because Jesus gives life, eternal life, fullness of life in the spirit. So I want to finish with one simple question. How will you respond to Jesus? (laughs) 